Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Father, we thank you for your word. We approach it humbly today, Lord, believing that you're going to give us revelation of who you are and who you have made us to be in Christ. And we thank you for that, Father, and thank you that your presence is here to enlighten, to instruct, to rebuke if necessary. We just believe, Father, for your voice to be heard in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let's start in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 again. Paul is, is summing up here in this letter to the Ephesians. He's, he's wrapping this message up to this church. And he says here, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And it, that is the, the, the whole import. If you don't start from that position, that this has nothing to do with your strength. This has nothing to do with your personality. This has nothing to do with your past. It has nothing to do with your, your family. It's, it's not your heritage other than your heritage in Jesus Christ. And I'm reminded of, of a story, and I just heard it repeated again this week. Um, there are two Hebrew children talking to one another, and this is there in Goshen, and it's right before the angel of death comes that night. And you've got Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, you know, obviously two Jews, and they're talking about what Moses has instructed them to do. And, and their instructions were to take hyssop, which if you, if you know hyssop, hyssop is a, a water plant. It grows in swamps. And it, it has a lot of, of moisture in it, kind of like a, similar to a cattail. And if you just take hyssop and, and take a stalk of hyssop and, and hit it on a doorpost, it's going to leave a wet mark. It's going to leave water. And Moses' instruction was to take a lamb for every household. And if your household was too small, then combine a couple of households because there were to be no leftovers. You were to eat it in its entirety, which reminds me of what Paul says here, put on the whole armor of God. You need to take the gospel in its entirety. Amen. This is, the gospel is not a cafeteria. You don't get to go through and pick the things you like. Not particularly, I love going to cafeterias, if they're good cafeterias. There are some cafeterias, and it's kind of like the, the false church, where you walk in and it smells good and it looks good, but when you get the food on your plate and you take a taste, it just doesn't have any flavor. But when you get good food, you know, when you're walking down that line and your big problem is, is I want three entrees because I want all, I want all of it. Can I just get a little of each? And they, well, pick out what you want. Well, if I was doing mine, I'd have fried chicken, I'd have mashed potatoes, I wouldn't have any vegetables, forget the salad, and I'd have three desserts. Why? Because I like what I like, and I don't care if those vegetables are good for me or not. I'm not going to eat them. 
My mama made me eat them when I was little. My mama ain't around anymore. Not eating them. Well, there are vegetable. There are, there's broccoli parts of the gospel. Amen? And you got to take the whole. But, but in, in Moses' instruction, he said, take this, this, um, this lamb, you slit its throat, you collect its blood, and then you roast the lamb over fire. You don't boil it. But you take the blood and you dip that hyssop branch in the blood and you strike your doorposts and the lintel. And everywhere you strike, you're going to leave blood and water, which is reminiscent of when Jesus was finally dead on the cross. The Roman soldier put a spear in his side and blood and water came out. It represented the death of Christ. But these two Hebrew children are standing there talking to each other and they're about to have to do this. And they look at each other and one guy says, what do you think of this? And the other guy looks at him. And remember, this is the, before Moses, before the law, there were sacrifices, but there was no law to govern exactly how the sacrifices were done. They didn't, do, they didn't have all the ritual around them. It wasn't nearly as prescribed or as often that they did this. It was an occasional thing. And everybody kind of did their own thing. After they got the law, God said, this is how you do it. And this is only the way you do it. But these guys had never lived under that yet. So one guy looks at him and says, well, you know, I'm not real sure about this. I just, you know, I hope it works. I really don't want to be dead in the morning. The other guy looks at him and says, no, Moses is our leader. I know it's going to work. I know it's going to work. And it'll work because Moses told, or God told Moses and Moses has told us. Now here's the point. The next morning, you go to these two Hebrew children's houses. Who's alive and who's dead? They're both alive. Because it's not the faith that they brought into it. It's the blood of Jesus on their doorposts that saved them. There is no premium for walking in doubt towards God's Word. But you can have doubt in your head. You can, can look at the promises and be overwhelmed by the promises and think, my God, I don't know how this can happen. How can I? We just did this with, with uh, praying for kin. How, where do you get the idea that you have authority to speak to another man's body and command it to be healed? Because Jesus, it's all based on the blood of Jesus. Not based on me. It's not because I'm righteous. It's because I applied the blood and the water to my doorpost. My doorpost. And I'm in Him. And in Him, He said, do this. You have authority. And my point is, we have to walk in that authority. That's where we finished up last week. But the authority is not based on my righteousness. It's not based on what a good fellow I am. It's based on the work of Christ at the cross and in the resurrection. Paul says this, Finally, my brethren, Ephesians 6.10, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. I have to constantly remind myself, this, this has very little to do with me and everything to do with the blood of Jesus. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Remember, the, the, the words there, to stand, are verbs. This is an action that's ongoing. It's not something that I do once that covers me forever. It's an action that I have to do over and over and over and over. But... I also have to, to come up with the realization and recognize that I am in a warfare. I, every day of my life, I have a struggle that's going to happen. Now, unfortunately, there are two ditches you can fall into when it comes to warfare. First, you get born again. That's it. I don't need to do anymore. Go into heaven. Heaven's been gained. Now I just got to muddle through life as best I can till I die and then Jesus will take me into his bosom. Best described as I'm a sinner saved by grace. And there's not much I can do to live a holy life, so why, why work at it? I, they, may, they may not consciously say that's my attitude, but that's what their lifestyle shows. And some of it is because, to be honest with you, from too many pulpits... That's all you hear. I grew up in the church. I heard Monday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I heard a sermon three times a week. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. And if you sin, then come and rededicate. And I've told the story. By the time I was a teenager, I'd rededicated hundreds of times, if not thousands of times, and it wore me out and I quit. If this is as good as it gets and I've just quit. I can't do it. Might as well, you know, rather than live in guilt, I might as well just go on and live in my flesh. That didn't work either. The second ditch is you get born again, and now I realize I do have a warfare, and I go out and I start fighting the devil, and every day is labor, labor, labor. I got to work a little harder. I got to work a little harder. I got to pray a little harder. Well, there is a work to do. I just said it earlier. We do need to saddle up, do our part, but we do it resting in the Lord. You can't do it all. Jesus is the only one that had the shoulders to bear the burden of the entire world. You cannot handle those burdens. You just handle your part. Somebody, uh, I think it was Steve, said, you know, was laughing, said, I know you said during your prayer that you really didn't care how people vote. He said, I know you were lying. And it's like, well, yeah, a little bit. But I've also come to the realization, I don't want to be your Holy Spirit. I'll tell you, one of the biggest temptations of a pastor is when people come in and say, Pastor, I've got this problem and I don't know what to do. There is a huge temptation to lay out a three-point plan. Well, this is what you do. And tell them how to live their life. Because it's, you know, I can give you a three-point plan for a lot of problems. But that's not my job. Now, it is my job to take you, if you're, if you're facing something, take you to the Scriptures, tell you what the Scriptures would say about that. 
and then tell you, you need to pray and you need to hear the voice of God for yourself. You need to let the Holy Spirit guide you and show you how you need to work your way out of this problem. Because if I tell you how to work your way out of the problem, if you succeed, you've just made me your God. Or you're tempted to do that. And if you fail, it's my fault. And i got enough problems without having you blame me for your problems. So it, there, there's always that temptation to give advice. Well, this is what you need to do. Avoid it. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit. We have to rely on God. Now, the key of all of this, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We looked um, last time at your authority, and that is a key, knowing that Jesus has given you authority in this life. But you also have to recognize with your authority, I have absolute authority over my, my life and my own body. Jesus has given me free will. I can walk with him or not walk with him. It's my choice. Now, you're a fool if you don't walk with him. But I can choose every day how I, I want to walk. I have authority in my own life. With my wife, I don't have quite as much authority as I do over my own life. But I have absolute authority to back the devil off of her life. Why? Because we're one flesh. We are in union. She has the same authority over me. Amen? It's one of the, the, the advantages of being married. You need to pray for your spouse. You need, you need to not, not pray to direct God or direct them in a certain way, but you need to pray God down on them and the devil off of them and do it quite regularly. With my children, I have a little less authority, but I still have some authority. When my children got married, my level of authority dropped down even less because now they're in a relationship. But I still have authority over them, in particular to pray the devil and his curse off of them. I'll be honest with you, when, when we got the, the word a year and a half ago that Mordecai was not doing well, the doctors had already said, if this little boy doesn't gain at least three ounces over the next three days, we're going to have to put him in, in the hospital and start feeding him artificially. There's something really wrong. Man, I went to war. I laid hands on that little boy. I declared everything I knew to declare. Why? Because he's my grandson. He's the fruit of my daughter's loins and my son-in-law's loins. He's the fruit of my loins. And because I have authority over my daughter and I have authority over my grandson, not to tell him what to do, but to tell the devil to get off of him. Now, his parents were praying. His pastor was praying. Other ministers that they had submitted to prayed. Long and the short story is the kid's, he's not even two years old and he looks like a lot of four-year-olds. He's almost three foot tall and weighs close to 45 pounds. He's huge. If the boy doesn't quit growing, he's going to be eight foot tall, which is okay because I'm counting on him to get an NBA contract and support my retirement. But we, we have authority. But our authority is just not absolute. It's just not, I don't have authority over everybody. As a pastor, I do have authority over a congregation. But only to the point where you can submit and receive that authority. 
So one of the biggest jobs of a pastor is to pray for their congregants and to preach the word so that you know how to stand up for your own rights. It's like my kids. If, if, I, if I don't raise my kids properly, they run from my house and they don't know how to support themselves. They don't know how to live life. But if I raise them properly, I give them the tools that when they leave, they know how to do what they need to do. It's the same relationship pastor to congregation. A pastor's job is to feed you the word to the point where you can stand up on your own two feet and rule and reign in your own life. And then take what you have learned and take weaker Christians and show them how to stand and believe and back the devil off of their life. But it can only, this can only happen when we put the Bible first place. And, and, and when it comes to this warfare, there is one overarching theme. We have to know, going into the fight, we've already won. This is not a fight where I'm trying to win a battle against the devil. The devil's already defeated. And if I don't go into it knowing he's already defeated, I'm going to feel responsible to, to defeat him. Now, I'm just reminding him. There are times when I may have to resist him and watch him flee. But I also understand that it's through the blood of Christ. It's through my authority through him, through his blood, that I can resist the devil. And every time I resist the devil, he will flee. He has no choice. Because he has no authority in the earth. He lost it all when Jesus came out of the grave. Don't go there, but in Romans chapter 4... Paul talks about Abraham being the father of our faith. So I want to take a minute and go back and look at what, what um, God told Abraham. So let's go to Genesis chapter 15. At this point, Abraham is still Abram. God hasn't changed his name yet. And I'm going to go in. I, I want to show you something about names. Keep this picture in mind. It started before Abraham, before Abram. The, the work, this, the scarlet thread of redemption, it's woven all through the Old Testament. It actually started in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell. We talked about this last week. They cut fig leaves and made coverings for themselves because they realized they were naked. And when God came in, he, there were some consequences to their sin, to the fall. But God killed an animal and made coverings of skin. The first sacrifice. And he also told the devil, there's one coming of the seed of this woman. And you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. He made a proclamation right there of the coming of Christ. It's part of the reason the devil came in and stirred up so much strife with, Abraham, or with uh, Adam and Eve's children. Because he wasn't thinking long term. He's thinking it's going to be their immediate family. You look at those sacrifices all the way through, but when we come to Abram, God realized through all of this that there was going to come a time he was going to have to pick a man and build a nation and bring the Messiah in through this nation. And he chose Abram to do it. And in Genesis 15, verse 1, 
In, in God's mind, Abram had no idea. All Abram knew at this point was God showed up to him in the Ur of the Chaldees and said, I want you to go and find the land that you know not of. And Abram screwed it up. He told him to leave all his family behind. Well, he took his dad with him. Didn't work. Delayed the, the plan for years. But God knows when we're going to foul things up. In fact, we're going to see one of the ways that God corrected that. But in Genesis 15, 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Even with Abram. Abram, this is not about you. I have chosen you, but this is about me. I'm going to be your, your shield. I'm going to be your exceedingly great reward. Now, verse 2 through 17, we're not going to go through, but, but God is preparing to make a sacrifice and enter into a blood covenant with Abram. That's important. No one pushed God into this covenant. God decided to enter into a covenant. But when you enter into a blood covenant, it's unbreakable. Part of the, 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 the law of the covenant is you take these animals and you split them right down their spine. And you lay out the halves. And then you walk through. Some people say they walk circles. Some I prefer the description of you walk through in a figure eight, which is a sign for eternity. Meaning it's an eternal covenant. And if I break this covenant, what happened to these animals will happen to me. I'm putting my life on the line. Everything that I am becomes yours. And everything that you are becomes mine. That's a great deal when you're making covenant with God. Because I don't have much to offer. I don't have anything to offer except my sin. And he has everything. But he entered into this willingly. But in, in verse 18, it says after he did this, and if you look at that covenant... God realized that Abram could not fulfill his end. So at the very end of the, of the process, he knocked Abram out. And it says a smoking lamp came through. That's the, the, the person of Christ. It's a pre-incarnate second person of the Godhead, the, 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 the being that was going to enter the body of Jesus. God himself came down and cut covenant with the father. So the father made a covenant that day and said, Abram, I'm making covenant with you, but you can't fulfill your end of it. So I'm going to make the covenant with myself. This being Christ, who will, the one that will be Christ, will be or is Christ, but will be Jesus, is going to stand in your stead. And he's going to make the covenant. Because you're not capable of fulfilling it. And then in verse 18, it says, On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. In the midst of this covenant that's going to cover all eternity, God just out of the blue says, Oh, by the way, all the land around here, and, and, and the land was huge. It's yours. That is important. You're in Genesis 15. Drop down to um, Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. Genesis 17, 7. 
God says to Abram, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting or eternal covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, I will be their God. Now, this is important because when we get to the time of Moses, the, the, the whole situation with Moses, that whole story is a type and a shadow of the Christian's life. We live in Egypt. Egypt is a type of sin. We're not born again. We're slaves to sin. But God comes in. He cuts a covenant with us. We put the blood and the water on our doorposts and on our lintel. And then we leave. And we get to the Red Sea and we pass through the Red Sea and we enter into, and, and all of our enemies are defeated at the Red Sea. All of Pharaoh's army, they drowned. There's no army left to attack us. But we come into the wilderness. It's about a two-week journey to go from the Red Sea into Canaan. Took them 40 years to get there. The reason it took them 40 years, and it would have taken more than two weeks because God had to establish some things with them. First thing God tried to do was he tried to establish that I want to be, I want to make you a nation of priests and I want to deal with you all individually. And they ran like their hair was on fire. They said, no, 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 no. You, Moses, you go talk to God. We're not talking to him. He's scary. You know, so God said, okay, I'll deal with you as best I can where you are able to do it. And he instituted the law. He instituted the priesthood so that they could come and get covering for their sin. But to go into the promised land is not a type of us going to heaven. Because for them to enter into the promised land, they still had enemies. There were giants in the land. But, but keep in mind, God has already given them the land. He did it with, with Abram before any descendants existed. God's already said, this land is yours. Very few people in that, in that camp, in the wilderness, believed it. Now let me take a little sidestep here. In the process of, of cutting this covenant at the end of, of Genesis 15, God changed Abram's name to Abraham. He changed Sarai's name to Sarah. God has this habit of changing people's names. And to change someone's name means he's changed their character. He, he gave Abram, or it's, it's not, in, in God's eyes, his character has changed. In Abraham's eyes, he's got, every time he looks at the night sky, he says, wow, that's my descendants. And this was before light pollution. And when you looked up, you saw the Milky Way. And you couldn't number the stars. You look at the night sky in Indianapolis, you know, if you can count to 100 or so, you can count the stars. Because there's so much light pollution, you just can't see many stars in the sky. But you get out in the desert where it's clear and it's dry, and they are out there by the billions. You cannot count them. He did this to change them. 
But there were other people that he did this to. He did it to Cephas. He changed his name to Peter. When, Pete, when he asked Peter in the Gospels, he said, Peter, or he asked all the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter got a revelation from, from the Holy Spirit and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looked at Cephas and said, yes, you're right, but this didn't come from you. It's not because you're smart, Peter. God gave you this revelation. But based on that revelation, I am changing you from your name from Cephas to Peter, which means little stone. The revelation, and I'm not going to go back and look at that, that, that the revelation was a Petros, a huge stone. Peter was simply a small stone chipped off the revelation. That tells me that where I start is with a revelation of who Jesus is. It all comes back to Jesus. It all comes back to who He was, what He did, and what He has given me. He also, we're reading our, our, our main text is coming from Ephesians, that comes from Paul. When Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he didn't know who Jesus was. In fact, he thought Jesus was a false prophet and the Christians were going to ruin the, the, the Jewish nation, so he was out looking for him to kill him. And Jesus met him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul said, I don't even know who you are. We mean I'm persecuting you. And Jesus revealed himself to Saul, and in the process of that revelation, changed his name to Paul. Why? Because Saul died, and Paul resurrected. Now, it, it happens in other places. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. John's been, been talking to the... Um, church of Pergamos, which is the compromised church. And at the end of the letter to the, to the church of Pergamos, he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Jesus wants to rename us. In fact, He has renamed us if we are Christians. Now, a lot of people read this and they say, yeah, but that's only to those that are overcomers. And well, I'm not an overcomer. I, I just, I can't do it. I can't live the life. They're like me when I was a teenager. They've tried and tried and they just gave up. Well, let's go back and look at what John says an overcomer is. In the first epistle of John, chapter 5, because being an overcomer has nothing to do with living a holy life. Being an overcomer may produce a holy life, but being, living a holy life won't make you an overcomer. We need to keep the cart and the horse in their right order. 1 John 5 verse 4. This is the same writer. This is John the Apostle wrote Revelation. This is how he describes overcomers. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith in what? See, people love to talk. I love it when, when worldly people tell me, well, I'm a person of faith. My immediate question is faith in what? 
Well, I just believe in, in the spiritual realm. I believe in angels. I believe in, and they'll name, they, it just depends on how weird they want to be. I mean, I know people, they believe in crystals. They believe in, you know, Gia. They believe in all kinds of things. That's not what John's talking about here. He's, he's talking about that what has overcome the world is our faith in Jesus and in what he did and who he is. But then in verse 5, he goes on. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you are a believer in Christ, you have already overcome the world in Christ. You already are qualified to receive that white stone that has a name that only you know, you and Jesus. Now, the worst part is the world will also try to rename you. You all know, and I'm sure you have, unless you got born again very late in life, you've heard the story about the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Do you realize that's not their real names? Their real names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. When, they were, when those three Hebrew children were in uh, Babylon, they renamed him. They didn't want him walking around saying Yahweh is gracious. So they gave him the name Shadrach. You know what Shadrach means? Servant of sin. Mishael means who is like God. Same way. They didn't want him walking around saying every time they called him, who is like God? Well, what God? Yahweh. So they renamed him Meshach. Meshach is the name of a Chaldean god, one of the false gods. And then in the same way, Azariah means Yahweh has helped. So they renamed him Abednego, which means the servant of Nego or Nebo, which is the god of science and literature in the Chaldean pantheon of gods. That's one, we got a lot of Abednegos in the world today. They worship science. Gina and I watched yesterday a, a movie, The Theory of Everything. It's a, it's a dramatic biography of um, Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking is one of the brightest and most intelligent men in the world. And also one of the most arrogant men in the world because he decided early on that he did not believe in God that he would not believe in God, and no matter what the evidence, in fact, he came up with a theory early on that proved that um, the universe had a beginning. Well, if it had a beginning, and time and space and matter and energy, and none of that existed, nothing was here, then what caused the universe to come into existence? The only thing you can attribute that to is God. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean the God of the Bible. You can attribute it to any God. You know, a lot of cultures have a lot of different explanations for the creation event. But Hawking's changed his, his entire field of study because he could not believe and he would not believe that the world had a beginning, the universe had a beginning, because that would be an acknowledgement that there has to be a God. Now, that's arrogance. And he's worked his entire life trying to prove that there are no boundaries to the universe. 
Because if, if the world had a, had a beginning and it's expanding, which is what science tells us, then if you go far enough, you've got to find a boundary. And on the other side, there's nothing. There's no space, there's no time, there's no matter. What is on the other side then? We don't know. Other than that's where God is. So, believing or, or uh, the, the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, took these three Hebrew children and renamed them trying to get them to believe that their God was weaker than the Chaldean and the Babylonian gods. But they didn't pay much attention. And when, when um, the king said, you're going to worship this image of me, they said no. And that's where you get the situation where he said, okay, heat the furnace, I don't remember how many times, ten times hotter than it normally is, and throw those three guys in. And the guards that threw them in, it was so hot it killed the guards. And yet, in the midst of that furnace, everybody looked in and said, wow, they're not consumed. It just consumed, the fire just consumed their, their bindings. But I see a fourth man walking around in there. And his visage is like the, the, the visage of God. It was Jesus. He came down and said, hey guys, you stuck with my names in your heart. And I'm here to rescue you. Amen. The point is, we walk in victory and we need to identify more with our victory and with God than we do with who the world says we are. Because the world will describe you in a lot of ways. And it will name you, it will tell you you have limitations. You can only do these things and you can go no farther. Well, you need to find out what God says about your limitations. And I can tell you what He will tell you. You have no limitations. You can do anything I tell you to do and anything I direct you to do. Amen? But when the Hebrew children got into the wilderness, Numbers chapter 13, uh, verse 1 and 2, says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I have given to the children of Israel. Now remember, going into the land is a type of us putting on the whole armor of God and doing this warfare, this wrestling with principalities and powers and mights and dominion and every name that is named. Which if you read earlier in, in Ephesians they're all under the feet of Jesus. That's why we're walking in victory. But we have the same choice that the Hebrew children did. And in verse 1 and 2 of Numbers 13, God didn't tell Moses, send them into the land and figure out how you can conquer it. No, he said, send them in to spy out the land. We're going to bring back evidence that this is a land of milk and honey, just like I told you it was. And we're going to figure out how, what route to take and what cities you need to go first because once you know the, the, the layout of the land, then I have some information that I can direct you and tell you, do this city first and this one second and so forth and so on. But these spies got their role mixed up. Their role was not to figure out what God wanted. Their role was just to go in and gather information. Here in Numbers 13, if you drop down to verse 27, this is where the, the ten spies came back to give their report. Verse 27, then they, then they told him, meaning Moses, in the hearing of all the people, 
We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. If they had stopped right there and just shut up, they would have been okay. But they always, they were, they, they, you would have thought they worked for Ford. They had a better idea. And if you understand that reference, you've just dated yourself from a very old commercial. Verse 28 says, Nevertheless, they threw in a big but. The land does flow with milk and honey, and here's its, here's its fruit. But the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, and they're not just large, they're very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The descendants of Anak are giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. The farther they go with this list of enemies, the more the people get stirred up and think, Oh, Lord, we can't do this. But notice verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. They bound themselves up with their own words. And they bound up the entire nation with their own words. Well, I can't do that. Well, God says you can. God doesn't know me. Wow. Verse 32. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report. I prefer the King James. It was an evil report. But the, the key was verse 33. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Annex came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Not only do, do, did, do they look at us and think we're grasshoppers, but I agree with them. We can't fight this fight and win. And I don't particularly want to go on a suicide mission. Now, if you go to Joshua chapter 2, this is when Joshua was getting ready to go into the land, finally after that generation died off, because they decided we can't do it, and God said, okay, you're just going to wander in the wilderness till all of you die. Well, then suddenly they got, oh, okay, no, 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 God, we, we can do it, we'll do it. And he said, no, stay away from it. And they said, no, we're going to go up and take the land. And he said, don't try it, you're going to get defeated. And they got whipped hard. Bad. And they wandered for 40 years until everyone in that generation, with the exception of Caleb, Joshua and Caleb, died off. And only Joshua and Caleb got to go in because only Joshua and Caleb believed God's report. And when they do go in, in Joshua 2, starting in verse 10, they're talking to Rahab. A couple of the spies went in to, to uh, Jericho. And they've enlisted the, the, the help of, of Rahab. And they're asking her about, you know, everything that's been going on. And her response is, we don't understand what's taking you guys so long to come across the river and attack us. For we had heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. 
and neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Even the heathens recognized that it wasn't the strength of the Hebrew children, it was the strength of their God. The devil recognizes how much authority you have. He recognizes how much, how much strength you have in Christ. More, I think, this is my opinion, I think he recognizes your strength in Christ more than you recognize it. Because he's already been defeated. That's why, let's go back to, to Ephesians 6.14. He says, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. What truth are we girding our waist with? The truth that Jesus has already defeated the enemy. He's given us his name. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his power. He said, now you, I've given you everything that I am. I've recreated you. Now you go in my strength and you conquer your land. And when you think I can't do it, just remember they look at you, all of the problems that you face, whether it's a personal foible, a weakness in your character, a, 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 a situation that you get in where you reach opposition, whether it's from the devil or from your own flesh or from, from other people. You have the authority in that situation. And you have the power to declare this is what God said about this situation. And when you declare his word, the devil will back up. Now, people may still resist you. Keep in mind that just because something is God's will does not mean it always happens. And I know that's a hard one for people to swallow. People will resist God's will. Unbelievers don't want anything to do with God's will. That's obvious. Jesus, or Paul said, I think it was Paul, said that it's the will of God for all, for none to perish, but all come into the knowledge of repentance and to become Christians. And yet he also says that the way to hell is broad and many will take it. The way to heaven is narrow and only a few will choose it. Why? Because most people will, will choose to resist God's call. They, even though it's God's will for them to be born again, they will dig their heels in and say, no, I will have no God. You're not going to tell me what to do. It's sad, but it's true. People will resist God's grace. And if you're walking in God's grace, they sometimes will resist you. You, you can go through and read in Acts. There were several places that, that Paul was called to go, and he never made it because people resisted him. He never got to those, some of, the, some of the places God called him to. He never got there. Why? Because the devil resisted him. He stirred up people to resist him. And it never happened. As long as you are standing in God's will, God doesn't hold you responsible for that. You just need to do, figure out what his will is for your life. And when you find opposition, oppose the opposition with his word. Now the great news is, go back to or go to Romans chapter eight. Remember, we 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 looked at this at the beginning. Paul at the end of chapter seven of Romans, he was frustrated. I want to do this and I don't do it right. 
I, I, my inner man wants to serve you, and then my outer man just fouls it all up. And he answered that in the end of, of Romans 7 by saying, what's the answer? Jesus Christ is the answer. And then Romans 8, 1, he says, now therefore there is no condemnation. He says right off, you are not condemned. But in Romans 8, verse 35... He's talking about, as he goes through all of these attributes, he starts talking about what's going to separate us from God. Verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, and he quotes from Psalm 44, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for slaughter. Now, I had planned on going back and reading all of these Psalms, and I'm not going to make it, so I'm going to give you the homework to do this. But this is quoting out of, out of Psalm 44. It's, it's the first of six Psalms, and it's, it's speaking of Korah. This is verse 36, and Psalm 44 really is a lament. Korah, if you remember the story, Korah was one of Levi's, the, the, the sons of one of Levi's sons. Levi had three sons. And he divided up, uh, not Levi, yeah, Levi. They were the priestly um, tribe. And they had charge of the tabernacle. And he took his three sons and he said, all right, you two sons, you're going to deal with all these things in the tabernacle, all of the drapes, all of the the paraphernalia and stuff. And when we get ready to move, you pack it all up. You can put it on carts and haul it wherever God takes us. But there are certain implements, the Ark of the Covenant being the most particular one, that this is going to be the, the, your responsibility. It's Korath, I believe was his name. And Korah is one of his descendants. And he said, you will wrap it up in, in a very particular way, but don't you ever touch it. If you touch it, you will die. But then you cannot put this on a cart. You have to carry this burden on your own shoulders. You can't get out from under this burden and put it on the burden of an animal. Well, that particular part of that tribe got tired of having to carry the load. Man, my brothers, they just load it on a cart and let an oxen carry it. And here we're carrying this thing on our shoulders and we're tired of this. So Korah, the rebellion of Korah was, they decided, well, we're, we're going we're to start burning incense. We've, we've decided that this, we don't want this ministry anymore. I know God called me to it, but I don't want it. I want this ministry. And so they decided to take it upon themselves. And Moses pulled back and said, okay, you burn your incense I'll burn my incense and we'll see who God chooses. And the earth opened up and swallowed all of them. Well, these, there were some youngsters who didn't take place in, or didn't take part in that rebellion. And they are the descendants of them. And they got back in line and did what God called them to do. Or, um, Psalm 44 is their lament and it's summed up by those two verses that Paul used. For your sake, we're, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Lord, you have abandoned us in the middle of the battle. We are getting defeated on every side. What is going on here? He thinks that they have, have um, God has completely abandoned them. 
But if you go through, and this is um, your assignment, go through and read Psalm 44 through 49, or 45 through 49. They spend one psalm complaining, God, you've abandoned us. And then the next five, all they do is celebrate. Why? Because God didn't. There are times when we may feel like, God, where are you in this? Man, the pressure's on. I'm being assailed from every side, and I don't see you doing anything, Lord. Why have you brought me out in the middle of this desert to die of thirst? I don't understand what the deal is. Now, maybe you don't talk to God that way. I do. God talks just back, you know, when, when God talks to my wife, he's very gentle because she would never raise her voice to him. When I get angry at God, I get angry at God and I talk to him straight. Now, the flip side of that is when God's ready to deal with me, he pulls no punches. It's like when my dad used to say, you know, working with mules, the very first thing you do is take a two by four and about a four foot length and you hit them right between the eyes as hard as you can just to get their attention. Well, sometimes he, God uses a two by four on me because that's what it takes to get my attention. But they're in the midst of this and they're thinking, Lord, where are you? Let's just read a, a couple of verses in chapter or Psalm 45 verse 1. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. He's talking about Jesus here. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride uh, prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. They're celebrating the victory of God. One psalm before that, they're saying, woe is me, where is God in my life? My point is you will have times when you think God has abandoned you. I can tell you with all assurance, that's not true. It may seem that way, and the enemy is going to do his best to rename you and say, uh, your name is, it's never going to work. Your name is, this is, you've been down this road before, and you know where it goes. It goes defeat, destruction, bankruptcy. Well, I don't care what the natural results are. If God has called you to walk the road, if you will continue to obey him, he will show up and you will end up victorious. Amen? And if, let me just be quite blunt. If God's called me to walk the road, and at the end I die and I have never seen that promise fulfilled, just the fact that I walked it out to the best of my ability and tried to walk in His strength, my reward will come in heaven. There is always a reward for walking in faith. Always. If you don't get it here, you'll get it there. But don't give up. Don't quit. You're in a warfare. You have an enemy. But you are walking with 
your, your, your loins belt girded up with that truth. The truth is, I've already won. He's already said, this land is yours. Go in and take the land. Well, I don't see how I can do it. Well, you can't. But I can through you. Well, those walls are big and tall. Well, just wait till I flatten them. When God starts doing a few miracles like that, then you can stand back and say, wow, my God is an awesome God. It's just like we sang after, after um, the offering. It's all the blood of Jesus. All of it. That's what it comes down to. Has God shed his blood and called you to do something? If he's called you to do it, you just walk it out. Knowing that you're going to get resistance, knowing you're going to have to fight, but knowing that he goes with you and that he will cause you to triumph in all things. And when the devil tells you your name is failure and you've, done, you've seen it before and you're going to see it again, I'm going, to make your, I'm going to rub your nose in this. Just tell him he's a liar. Resist him and watch him run. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just come before you right now. Thank you for your word. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.